A group of uh, kindergartners were working hard at an independent art assignment they'd been given in their class. And their teacher was just walking around uh, amongst the desks, kind of looking at what the kids were drawing. And some were drawing little houses, and others were working on drawing little cars and trucks. And she stopped by one particular desk, and the girl was drawing something that the teacher didn't quite recognize. And she said to her, Sally, what, what are you drawing? And Sally looked up briefly and said, I'm drawing God. And she went back to her work. The teacher was flabbergasted, and she said, well... <laughs> Sally, you know, not everybody really agrees on or even knows what, what God looks like. And this time, Sally didn't even look up. She just kept working with her crayon. In a minute, they will. <laughs> that particular sentiment, that particular conviction, that particular certainty is characteristic of an awful lot of the religions of this world. Have you noticed that? It feels like almost every major world religion has this belief that they know what God looks like. They're the ones who can tell us what God looks like. What is his way? What is his truth? What is that life that we are meant to have if we follow that particular God? And yet those of us who have lived for a little while, who've traveled around, who've seen other cultures and maybe even other nations, naturally, when we hear this kind of certainty and conviction, have got some questions. We wonder how it is possible that anybody knows it all. We think of that proverbial story of the three blind men who approached an elephant one of them grabbed the elephant's uh, trunk, the other one grabbed the elephant's tail, the third one touched the elephant's side, and each of them went on to describe what an elephant is like based on the particular part of the elephant they were touching. None of them had it completely right. All of them had a piece of the truth, and we wonder if religions aren't like that. We wonder if maybe we need all of the different religions of the world to help us understand the elephant to help us really get a grasp on the wonder of who any God could be who could create all that we see. And, and, and we feel sometimes when we hear the truth claims of any particular religion, if that religion and maybe all religion shouldn't humble down a bit more, wise up a little bit more, and recognize that none of us has it all, and that we'd all be better off if we would just not speak with such certainty about our convictions, maybe the world would be a little bit more of a peaceful place. Have you ever thought that? Is there any part of you that has ever gone to that particular place? I know I have. I know I certainly have. And I think it's because of that natural sensibility, that openness, I guess, to continuing to be on the grow, to keep learning from uh, uh, the life that we have and the witness of, of, of God through many um, religions, that, that the statement that Jesus makes, the things that Jesus does, are pretty provocative to me, maybe to you too. After all, you have in him this, this individual that, it, that seems so remarkably broad-minded, who seems so widely um, oriented. 
You have in, in Jesus somebody who seems willing to serve almost anybody, somebody that is not just interested in his own narrow little tribe or, or kind of person, but is interested in the Jew and the Gentile, the man and the woman, the slave and the free person, the centurion, uh, the, 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 the blind man. Jesus, it seems, has just got a deep and broad concern for all kinds of people. And yet, unlike the founder of any other major religion, Jesus goes on to say some incredibly radical things. Uh, he, he goes on to say that he is himself not simply a child of God, but actually the Son of God. And we're going to actually explore that particular claim in depth next week when we come back to this particular series. But even more provocative still, maybe disturbing still, is what Jesus says to us here in this passage from John chapter 14 that we're looking at uh, today. Because in this particular text, Jesus makes this really dramatic observation where other religious leaders lay out some propositions or some processes or some programs that we can follow in order to get closer to God, Jesus does not point towards a path or towards stuff. He points towards himself. He says, focus on me. If you want to know God, focus on me. Because anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, he says. For I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We might be tempted to think that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, pay attention to my life, study my life and my teaching, and I'll help you get closer to God. I'll help you discover some true principles. I'll give you some life-enhancing tips. But no, Jesus is actually going a whole lot further than that. Jesus is saying, I am the road of life. I am the reality about life. I am the ultimate recreative power of life itself, and not a single soul can possibly get close to all of who God is without me. Wow, that is like a dramatic statement. I mean, how does Jesus fit into the world parliament of religions? Uh, I, I mean, just how well would he get along with the major thinkers of other religious traditions, this, this kind of Jesus? How are we going to talk even about this Jesus in our college dorm rooms or, or at our co cocktail party conversations where pretty, pretty much everybody today is, is sure that there are all kinds of roads that lead up to the top of the mountain of God? I mean, how do we even uh, confess belief in a Jesus like that? What do you make of a, of a Jesus who doesn't just say, hey, I've got a really good handle on the elephant. I can draw you a great picture of the elephant, but a Jesus who actually says, no, I am he. Climb on me. I will take you. I alone can take you to the top and over the mountain. Which brings to mind the question, has to, does for me, should for you, at the core, is Christianity just too narrow? Is it, is, it, is it just too narrow to fit into a, a responsible view of, of reality? Well, I want to try and go after that question with you today. 
And, and if you leave this place with just one really big idea that, is, that, that you're turning on and working with, it, the big idea w- would be this. Um, if you believe what the Bible teaches and what Christian tradition has held, this, this is the nugget. The arms of God open very, very wide, but they are attached to the body of Jesus. Okay? That's the big idea for today. They open very wide, but they are attached to the person of Jesus. Now, just that first notion that the arms of God open very, very wide uh, can, be, can be hard to agree on, uh, especially if you have uh, been paying attention to religions of late and to the characters and the figures that represent different re- religions, and particularly the Christian religion. I mean, we have been exposed to the, to the church lady version of Christianity, uh, We've been exposed uh, to the Pharisaical uh, version of Christianity. We've been exposed to the, to, the, to the far wings of the left and the right. And what we notice about people that represent Christianity in that sense is that they are very, very bent on criticizing and condemning people that don't seem to line up with their particular understanding of things. Uh, we, we've met the, uh, the, the God of the, of the televangelist that... that is manipulative. We met the vengeful God of the terrorist. It would be very easy if you look at all of these representatives of faith to get the sense that, that God is only interested in the narrowest bandwidth of people. God wants his tribe, his party, his little group. Those are the chosen ones that God cares about and everybody else can pretty much just go to H-E double hockey sticks. I mean, really, that's sort of the the picture that we often get. And then we meet Jesus. And then we run into Jesus. Um, And I want to contend to you that that Jesus shows us the real face of God. Um, There's this uh, particularly memorable scene in the movie The Passion of the Christ uh, in which the camera takes us to Golgotha, to uh, the mount we call Calvary, to the place of the crucifixion. And what's fascinating about this particular scene is that, is that the camera is not on the ground looking up at Jesus. The camera is actually up behind Jesus, who's hanging on the cross, and it, and it gives us a Jesus-eye view of the entire scene. I'll never forget this. Uh, because what, you, what you're seeing is almost through Jesus' eyes, it's just behind his head, zooming down, as you see the jeering crowd below him and the people milling around and you see the soldiers and you see the, the, the people that, that arrested him. And, and, and then you, beyond that, you see the, the buildings of the city of Jerusalem with all of the, the crazy, chaotic clamor and commerce of the world city. And you have this sense that you're, that you're seeing through the eyes of Jesus the whole of the world. And, and then what, what struck me anyway in watching this is you get the sense that Jesus' arms aren't just tacked there. They're not just hanging there on the cross. They're actually reaching out as widely as they can possibly go in order to wrap themselves around the whole chaotic, sordid clamor that is humanity. You get the sense that Jesus is trying to hold in his arms the whole of the world. 
And that is true. That is what he went there to do. To reach out as widely as he could to the whole of the world. The Bible shows us a God whose salvation is stunningly inclusive in its intended scope. And it's not just in that particular scene, it's throughout the scriptures that we get this picture of a God whose heart isn't for one particular little bandwidth of people, but is passionately concerned for all people. If you were with us for the Jonah series, you'll remember how God was reaching out to the pagan, violent people of, of, of Assyria, uh, and how hard it was for even God's servants to get. How wide is the concern of God for the people of this world? We read in Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and following, God our Savior wants all people to be saved. Which people? All of them. He wants all of those people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, a transformative knowledge of the truth. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 declares, the Lord is patient. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why does Jesus not come uh, back again and, and fix things? It would have been a great time to do it just before the polar vortex hit in this area. Why doesn't he come back? We wonder that sometimes. And the answer is because God is patient. Because God wants as much time for as many people as possible to respond to his outstretched hand. God wants no one to perish, everyone to come to repentance. Or listen to the words of Jesus in maybe the most famous Christian text of all time. It was the first Bible verse I ever, uh, uh, ever memorized. For God so loved the church. No, the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever, anybody, whosoever believed in him, which means to put their trust in him, should be saved should have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn the world. No, but that the world through him might be saved. The arms of God are stunningly wide and inclusive in the intended scope of his salvation. This is one of the great themes of scripture. We see it again and again. One of the last things Jesus ever says. In fact, it is the last thing he says to his disciples before he leaves uh, earth. He says to them, I want you to go out into all the world and share the gospel the, the, of my life-changing love with everyone you can. I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth and, and, and invite everybody you possibly can in. Jesus tells a powerful parable, one of the most luminous of its parables is about a, a master who throws a great banquet and sends his servants out to the highways and byways to invite anybody who is hungry to come and find their place there at that banquet. God shines his light through, through so many different religious traditions. Let me say that really out loud and clear to you. You can, you can look at, at pagan religion and primitive religion and lots of the major world religions and you're gonna see something of his light shining through. I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe that in Jesus we have the, the scripture fully pulled up from the window and all the light we can possibly take in as human beings shining through there. But even through other religions, you'll find the light breaking through the blinds in various places, showing us something of God's character. And God made it clear that he would do this. He, he would express himself through creation, through human consciousness, through human conscience, his character 
his moral desires, his very existence, and, and his presence with us. Romans 1 and verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. They're available to everybody. They've been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse, so that everybody has an opportunity to know something of who he is, to know the Father's heart. Maybe one of my favorite hymns uh, in the life of the church, we just sang it at our traditional service a little while ago, is there is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. There is a welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. And it is because of these outstretching arms, this wide mercy and grace that we see in Jesus, this is why Christians can dare to say that he is the way, that he is the true way, the way, the truth, and the life. But he is also the only way, the Bible says, and he himself says. For just as God's salvation is staggeringly inclusive in its intended scope, so salvation is also exclusive in its reliable source, in, in, in its actual source. In other words, the arms of God open very, very wide, but they are attached to Jesus, to the person of Jesus Christ. Acts 4 and verse 12 reads, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now, I know that's a hard teaching. Uh, I, I get that. I went to college too. I've had conversations with people from so many different backgrounds as you have. And, and it's a troubling thing to really sit for very long with the idea that there is this one way, that maybe Jesus is the only way to come to the Father. And, and, and I think that, that part of our trouble in, in, in embracing that idea or our natural aversion to it in some cases, is it has to do with four sort of um, intellectual challenges or um, ways of thinking about life that, that become blocks for us. And I wanna think about those uh, four key concepts with you very, very briefly and see if we can't uh, help um, overcome the struggle that they present for us. The first of, of the powerful concepts that I think it's important for us to take in is that, is that nobody is entitled to salvation. Let me just let that one sit. Because we live in a world where entitlement is a big, big thing. Nobody is entitled to salvation. God did not have to make us in the first place. God did not and does not have to sustain us as he's doing right now. God does certainly not need to save us for eternity to be with him in heaven 
everything about our existence, our past, our present, our future, is his grace. It's his amazing grace. And and I'll hear people sometimes, and you've heard them, maybe you've even said this sometimes, I'll hear people say, oh well, I just know that God would have to let Harry into heaven or Sue into heaven because of that remarkable life they lived. And they'll say that with just absolute certainty, like the blind man touching the elephant. Uh, But that perception is only because God shields us from seeing the full splendor and glory of his actual being, of his full holiness. Because when it comes to righteousness, we tend to grade on a curve. We, when we're defining goodness, we're grading it on a curve in which we're comparing ourselves to others or comparing others to even worse people. We grade on a curve. God grades on a cross. In other words, his standard for goodness is Jesus. It is the one perfect, holy, obedient life ever lived by a human being. That is the standard of goodness against which Harry and Sue and Dan and Billy Graham and Mother Teresa are measured. And most people that have gone really far in their journey with God, including the Billy Grahams and the Mother Teresas, would say, I'm not even close to good. As we're reminded by the Apostle Paul, all the rest of us have sinned. We fall far short of the glory of God and the wages of sin, the the penalty of sin, the Bible teaches, is death. It's eternal separation from this God. There's going to come a day, I promise you, when you and I and everybody else who has ever lived are going to find themselves standing in front of God, face to face with Jesus in eternity. And in that moment, we are going to be just so blown away we get pictures of this in the book of Revelation in which the angels, and these, these are mighty, pure, incredible beings. They can't even look into the face of God. They're flat on their faces on the ground in abject worship before the glory and the splendor of God. I promise you when you're standing there and Harry's there and Susan's there and anybody else is there, there's not going to be a single one of us that looks at this God and thinks, let me explain to you why I deserve to be let in. It ain't happening. It just isn't happening. So remember, none of us deserves salvation. And secondly, we can't save ourselves. No matter how sincere we are, no matter how many frequent worshiper miles we rack up, Bad news for you if you came today with thinking that. Um, No matter how many moral merit badges we acquire relative to other people, uh, we don't save ourselves by our good deeds. We just don't. Uh, And there are are a lot of religions that that seem to suggest that, that if we just, you know, sacrifice more and give more and do more and believe more and attend more and all that, 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 that we're going to get ourselves into God's good graces. In a sense, I want you to picture a ladder. Almost every single religion has a ladder like this and people are climbing it and the rungs are the good deeds and the religious rituals and the, and the, the, 
the doctrinal ideas and so forth. And the notion is in every single religion is you just keep climbing, you just keep climbing, you just keep climbing. Eventually you get to a place where God will say, oh, you're here. That's really impressive. Great climb. Come on in. That's not the message of Christianity. Here's the picture in Christianity. We're out there on that ladder, climbing, trying to prove ourselves, trying to earn salvation for ourselves. And all of a sudden, we feel this like tug on our clothing. And it's pull free, and we keep climbing. We feel it again. And we finally look down, and there's Jesus below us. And he says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to God. And Jesus goes, have you any idea how long that ladder is? Don't wear yourself out. You don't have to do this. You could never make it, which is why I came down, which is why I'm here, to offer you forgiveness, to offer you my presence, to invite you into a new kind of life. And thereafter, after that encounter, once you've gotten that encounter, anytime you put your hand on the rungs, you attend a church service, you do a good deed, you, you seek better understanding through the Bible study of, of, of correct belief, orthodox belief, anytime you do that thereafter, it's not because you're climbing anymore. You're just saying thank you. You're just living out of gratitude for what he alone has done for you. You just want to know him better, reflect his character more, bless other people in his name. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And we're told in the scriptures, it is by grace you have been saved. It is by the choice of God to come down. It is by the choice of God to, to stretch his own body out upon a cross and pour out himself uh, to pay the full price for sin because none of us have got enough in our moral bank accounts to pay that price. Only he does. You've got all kinds of religions out there that's saying you just need to sacrifice more for God. You need to, to, to cut yourself. You need to bleed more for God. You need to send your kids to blow themselves up for God. Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity speaks of a God who bleeds for you, who sends his son to die for you. And for me, out of love. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, says Paul to the Ephesians, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And I might say that so no one has to despair. So nobody deserves salvation. We cannot possibly save ourselves. Third big idea People who are truly clear on their condition, their moral condition before God, do not tend to get hung up on the narrowness of Christianity because they are too busy giving thanks for the hope that they've been given no matter how that came. They're just too filled with gratitude to quibble about the methodology by which their salvation came. And now I think this is the stumbling block for a lot of people. I, I think I think we live in a multiple option society and we think that God ought to respect that. <laughs> I mean, really, there ought to be more choices here. 
There ought to be a whole variety of ways, a little bit more customized, a little more tailored, a little more personalized, a little more optimized. Right? We think this way. We think this way. But if we understand the conditions, the mindset changes. Here are the conditions. You and I are on the Titanic. The iceberg is hit. The deck is pitched. The water is rising. Are we going to quibble now about the color of the lifeboat? Or the fact that it's here and not over there? Just imagine you're in one of those terrible forest fires that have raged across California in recent days and you, and you find yourself running from the fire and it's coming and it's hot and it's heavy and right behind you and you get to the edge of this cliff, this huge ravine and you see there's a chasm you can't possibly cross and, you're, and you feel the singeing on the back of your neck and you look over here and you notice there's a footbridge over the ravine to the other side. How many of you are going to stop there and go, why aren't there more bridges? Why isn't it over here? Why is it 30 yards this way? Nobody who understands the conditions is going to do anything but give thanks that there is a way. That there is a way. And the apostle puts it like this in 1 Timothy verse 2 or chapter 2 verse 5 we give thanks that there is one mediator between God and humanity the man Christ Jesus we just give thanks that he's the lifeboat that God has provided in him the great bridge I, 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 I don't know if any of these perspectives are helpful but I will say that there is one fourth and final uh, reality that, that I know is a stumbling block and, and makes us worry about the narrowness of Christianity. And I just want to encourage you to remember that people are accountable before God only for what they know. Some of us, we worry about people who don't know we want we, to we wonder about that aborigine out in the, in the plains who's never heard about Jesus, who never really, we, or that person in another religious tradition that never has been really exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we think, well, you're going to tell me that God's going to send somebody like that to hell just because they never had the chance to know, to hear, to understand? You, you can't tell me that God is like that. And I just want to say two things to you about that. One is he has every right to do that. He is God. He is God. He threw the party. He can say when it's over. He can say when it's time for certain guests to leave. He is God. He has that right. But the second thing I want to say to you is that if you know Jesus, you know God is not like that. You know God is desperately concerned about everybody and wants everybody to find their way home to him. And, and, and so we see these evidences in the scripture of a God who reaches out to people in all kinds of different ways uh, to try and bring them to himself. In fact, we even read in Hebrews chapter 11 about a whole group of people who never got to know Jesus, who, who were told are justified. They're put right with God by faith, even though they never knew the historical Jesus. 
And, and on the strength of that scripture and some other was, I could name, I, I, I think it's possible that there might be some people out there who by faith know they cannot earn salvation by themselves, that they're never going to be good enough to please a holy God, and who throw themselves upon the mercy of God, who never pray the exact sinner's prayer that I've prayed, or don't even maybe understand the historical circumstances of what Jesus did upon the cross. There may be some of those folks who God brings home. Um, we might meet Socrates in heaven. I, I, I don't know. But it's not our business to know. It's our business to tell about the way that we know is a safe way. If you said to me, Dan, I want to go to Chicago this afternoon, uh, I, I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of, 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 of heading west. I would say, oh, no, no, don't do that. And, they, and you say, well, I'm pretty, I believe that all roads lead to Chicago. And I say, oh, well, a lot of roads could get you pretty lost. And you might find yourself in Des Moines. No offense, I like Des Moines. But if you want to go to Chicago, I recommend 290. Head east. Head east. So our job as followers of Jesus is to to point people to the way that we know goes into the heart of God, into the heart of the Father. And that is Jesus. Acts 4 and verse 12 says, there is no other name by which somebody can be saved. That verse, by the way, is less about our saying the name than it is about the authority of the name. In fact, the word, the phrase name of Jesus or name of God means authority of Jesus or authority of God. If anybody is saved, if Socrates or that aborigine does get saved, it will be because of the authority of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that that person comes in. I can't bet on them coming in on that authority. That's why I'm gonna share the faith with them if I can. I'm gonna talk about Jesus with everybody that I know how to talk with. Let me underline in closing, all religious paths don't go to the top of the mountain. I mean, if you study other religions closely enough, you discover they've got very different understandings about God and salvation and different kind of ladder and all of that stuff. Some religious paths can get you pretty lost uh, I remember uh, a neighbor who died at Jonestown uh, following a religious path. Some religious paths can lead you to the edge of a ravine or just to an endless works righteousness and, and a sense of despair and anxiety. Some can. But Jesus, Jesus will not lead you astray. He won't. And if you follow him, as narrow that road may seem, it leads to a wide and wonderful kind of life. The great distinction between Christianity and other religions is that Christianity teaches that truth is not a principle, it's not a process, it is not a program, it is not a set of propositions. Truth is ultimately a person. It's a person. Other religions are based on their founders' teachings and systems. Christianity is based on its founders' heart and life expressing that heart so it is really only 
that as you walk with Christ, that, that the truth of who he is and the goodness of the way he marks out and, and the life that he becomes in you resolves to absolute clarity, or at least as much as we're going to get in this life. All I can say is that if you're following Jesus, the picture of who God is, like that little girl believed, is going to get a, a lot clearer for you in, in a minute, and in the next minute, and in the next minute, as you follow him. Would you please pray with me? Thank you, Lord, that you have made it possible for us to know you, that you have revealed yourself to us. Draw us unto yourself, we pray. Help us to find you who are the way. And make us, Lord God, glad and joyful and loving witnesses of, of you, Lord, wherever we go today. For we pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.